And turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. That's page 918 if you're using the Pew Bible. I, I think you'll be surprised to hear with all that we've gone through in Ephesians that this is actually one of the passages in uh, Ephesians that I was most excited to, to preach. Um, I love, just love this passage and I think that the, the truths laid out here are really foundational to our vision for how we do discipleship. Uh, on Wednesday this past week, I told my wife that I was wrestling with, are we going to go from what, verse 1 through 16, or are we going to take it in smaller chunks? And she said, you're going to take it in smaller chunks, because I have kids ministry on Sunday. So um, you can thank her for that. Just like 10,000 tiny little br- brush strokes make up a painting, or 10,000 tiny little scrapes and chisels make up a sculpture, sculpture. In the same way, a healthy church is made up of 10,000 little moments of members building one another up. It's the conversation in these very aisles after the service today, the phone call to check in on a prayer request. It's the, hey, why don't you swing on by after dinner and let's study together. It's the meal that says, keep going, we've got your back. The meeting for lunch, having someone over for dinner, they're going along to sports games and and so on. A healthy church is is built up when the part of the body is equipped, working properly, and engaged in the work of building up the body. A healthy church is continuously built up when every part of the body is equipped, working properly, and engaged in the work of building up the body. So leaders are important. We're going to see that today. But our church doesn't have just one minister. Our church doesn't have just four ministers. At present, we have 65, and we're going to vote in another one after service today. Okay? I really believe that the truth of Ephesians 4 is a make it or break it for our health as a church. Will we be a united church gathering together around the great call of the gospel? Will we be an equipped church? Will all of our leaders and teachers labor to feed the word of God to the congregation and then Will we all be committed to the work of ministry for building up the body? Will we we be the kind of church where only the leaders are doing the work of building up? Or will we be the kind of church where every member takes seriously their responsibility to grow, to help one another grow? I love the Thessalonian language, I think I've mentioned before, the Thessalonian language of more and more. In Thessalonians, Paul says, he exhorts, he exhorts the healthy Thessalonian church uh, in something like love one another and uh, something like that. And then he tells them to do the things that they're already doing more and more. So as we look at this passage today, I want us to be encouraged about so many healthy things that are already going on in our body, 
But I also want us to commit to doing those things more and more. Let us also commit, again, to every one of us picking up that paintbrush to add our little brushstroke to the masterpiece that is Christ's church. Every one of us picking up the scalpel and helping sculpt who we are as a body. So let me read Ephesians 4, 1 through 16 for the context, and then we'll focus in on 1 through 12. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who was over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may not may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would use your word now to change us, that you would uh, empower us by your spirit as we listen and come under your word. Father, I pray that you would stir in us a love for you and a love for your church that expresses itself in all kinds of building up of one another. Father, I pray that you would help us to think biblically about the church, help us to shed any non-biblical ideas that we have about the church, and Father, I pray that you would convict us where we need to be convicted, that you would encourage us where we need to be encouraged, Father, and that you would stir up by your word, that you would stir us up more towards love and good deeds towards one another. I pray that you would do this work in us right now, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, chapter 4 marks a shift in the letter to Ephesians. And 4.1 really serves as the topic sentence for most of the rest of the letter. It focuses on the outworking of the gospel in our lives. So in chapters 1 through 3, Paul's primary aim was to unpack the great glories of the gospel message. And then in chapters 4 through 6, Paul then begins working out the implications of 
the gospel message. So let me just say at the outset, if you're here today and you're investigating Jesus, then we're glad that you're here. But uh, I don't want you to mishear me at all. I'll spend most of my time today talking about what we, the church believers, are to do in light of the gospel. But the Christian message is always first about what Christ has done for us before it's about what Christ has done and what, what, what the church does in response to that. So you've missed out on chapters one through three. The Christian message is about what Christ has done for us and then we now talk about what we do in light of that. So if you're not a believer this morning, then just know that the first step for you is to admit your need for Jesus. You need Christ's cross to reconcile you to God before you start worrying about any of the things that we talk about here. In chapters 4 through 6, Paul begins working out implications of the gospel. It's important to note that the, all of the practical implications that we see in 4 through 6 are rooted back in 1 through 3. So Paul doesn't start here saying, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. He starts saying, I therefore urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. The therefores and the so-thens of Scripture are crucially important because they remind us that what he's now commanding us to do, he's commanding us to do because of the gospel, because of the ways that our lives have been changed by all of the truths of 1 through 3. And he will do this repeatedly in chapters 4 through 6. So we'll see in chapter 5, walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Going on, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The fruit of chapter 4 through 6 is repeatedly, repeatedly put uh, in the roots of chapters 1 through 3 in the gospel message. Here he begins his exhortation, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You can recall from past weeks that we saw this walk language back in chapter 2. If you'll remember, we once walked in darkness, but now we walk out in the new creation life that God has prepared for us. And we'll see the walk language repeated over and over again in chapters 4 through 6 as we carry on. You say, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Walk in love. Look carefully then how you walk. Walk in the Bible speaks to your life's direction, which direction you're headed, which way you're oriented. And so Here we are exhorted to walk out in a manner becoming of the great grace which we've received. The glorious gospel. Think back with me for a moment, church, about all that we've already covered in Ephesians before we move on to think about what we're to do in light of that. The glorious grace which we've received. The glorious gospel prepared by the Father, accomplished by the Son, applied by the Spirit, 
We were rescued from the terrible, sobering news. We're made new creations in Christ. We're adopted together into his one new family, the church. But these lavish blessings carry with them responsibilities. We can't receive those things in vain as if they have no effect. But rather we walk in a manner that responds in worship to his lavish grace. Note, note especially here when you look at 4.1, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. The calling to which you have been called has in view both the individual aspect of Christ calling you to himself, and it also has in view the corporate aspect that when Jesus calls you to himself, he calls you into the church family. We've talked about that in chapter 2 and chapter 3. And so this letter has labored to show us the personal and the corporate. Adopted? Yes adopted into a family. So let's remember that as we think through walking in a manner worthy of our calling, that that calling is both personal and corporate. As it applies to us, I want us to see three things from the text this morning. Number one, maintain unity. Number two, get equipped Number three, build up the body. The first call of our passage today is to maintain unity inside the family of God. Verse two two through six are summed up in verse three's call to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. The word here translated in the ESV, eager to maintain, is a strong word. One scholar notes, Paul's appeal is urgent and cannot be easily translated into English. The verb he uses has an element of haste, urgency, or even a sense of crisis to it. So in 2 Timothy and in Titus, the same word is translated, do your best, in the CSB, the same word, the, the verse here is translated, make ev- making every effort to keep the unity. Okay, so making every effort in the NASB, being diligent to preserve the unity. The work of unity in Christ's body is something we must be eager for, making every effort in being diligent in. Paul's using strong language. Further, note that the call is to maintain, keep, preserve that which the church already has. You don't keep something, you don't maintain something that you don't have. The church already has that. The church starts with unity. We possess all the resources necessary to be united as one family. What's he say right there? Be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. That is, this is something the Spirit has created in us. If we go back and read in chapter 2, 11 through 22, go, go back and listen to that sermon if you need to, but just as we are individually a new creation, we are also corporately a new creation. 
It says we are reconciled in one body through the cross. We've been brought together by the blood of Christ. So we start with plenty of unity. But it does take work to maintain, to keep, to preserve, or Paul wouldn't have to urge us to strongly make every effort to maintain unity. On down in verses 4 through 6, we see seven simple, magnificent declarations of what the church shares together that ought to be plenty to serve like rare earth magnets pulling us together over and over again. But let me say this before we get there. It is hard, right? Like looking at this, we can see like this is what should unite us, but it's hard. It's something we have to fight for And in our own culture of individualism, it's something we have to fight for all the more. I know you're probably tired of hearing me talk about individualism, but here's the thing. All week long, the world shouts individualism at us, and so we need to come together and shout back from his word uh, on, on occasion And if we're going to talk about unity as much as Ephesians talks about unity, then we're going to have to deal with what what threatens to to divide us. And one of the main things in our culture that threatens us is individualism. Our American culture of individualism, Western culture of individualism, loves to self-express our differences all the ways that we are unique. We love to celebrate that none of us are the same. And then we have all kinds of identities that we can pile up that reflect our uniqueness and personhood. Maybe think, uh, think maybe humorously, think about uh, all the identities of high school, right? Like uh, all the different stereotypes that you can think back in high school. You got the athletes, Right? you got the smart kids, the drama kids, and, and so on. Add to that different racial or ethnic groups. Add to that the, some sort of like aesthetic or style. In my day, it was like the preppy kids and the hip-hop kids, the uh, country kids, sure, and the emo kids. If you don't know what that is, you're not missing out. Um, that's just, you, can, you don't need that knowledge. Um, and so you start stacking up these kinds of identities, and that makes you what the individual that you are, the precious little like nobody else individual that you are. Growing older, there's still much the same in effect and how we can think about personhood, how we can think about who we are, white collar or blue collar, educated or not, your family status, are you married, are you single, are you divorced? Kids, no kids, empty nesters. Where are you from? Are you from the U.S.? Are you from elsewhere? Are you Southern or are you Yankee? There's only two kinds, really. If you're, <laughs> if, if you're from here, that's Arizona, New York. You're all Yankees. Um, are you urban? Rural, suburban, where did you come from? Generational, boomer, Gen X, millennial, Gen Z, and so on. 
Add to that all kinds of personal choice things. Are you outdoorsy or are you indoorsy? Are you a foodie? Not. Reader? Not. You like good music or you like pop music? Um, <laughs> add to that then all kinds of like the internal aspects of who we are and who we consider ourselves to be. Are you introverted or extroverted? Are you analytical or are you feelings oriented? Are you task oriented or are you people oriented? There's all kinds of ways that we can go about thinking about ourselves, and the Bible does, listen, the Bible does affirm and celebrate uniqueness. I think that the Imago Day celebrates differences with more substance than the world could ever celebrate differences. There's a place for talking about how we're different, and there's a place for, and we'll even see some of that in our passage here today, but here's what we need to see. More important than any of the ways that we're different are the vastly more weighty ways that we're all the same. It's the key for unity in the church is that we all share the same thing and we need to elevate the ways that we are the same before we uh, elevate the ways that we're different. Read with me from four through six. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called, to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Before all of our wonderful differences, we share in these things which should unite us in spite of any other kinds of differences that we have. If this is the most important thing in your life, and it should be, and it's the most important thing in my life, and it should be, then we really have no place for that kind of, we really don't have much in common, right? We have all of this in common. Me and so-and-so just don't connect. Connect over this. Paul's list of unity statements is seven items Three are persons of the Trinity. All but one has been mentioned already in this letter. So Paul's statement then is a review. It's a callback. It's a grounding the behavioral implications in the theology of one through three. There is one body. If we go back, 123, God gave Christ as head over all things to the church, which is his body. In 2.16, Christ reconciled us all in one body. And verse 21, being joined together and grows. So it's a body that joins together, grows. 3.6, we're members of the same body. 4.12, before coming under the, then on in 4.12, before coming under closer examination again, in 4, 15 through 16, we are uh, built to build up the body of Christ. One spirit. Okay, look back with me at this. One, in 1 verse 3, all, of, all believers have been blessed in Christ with every blessing of the spirit. In 13, all believers were sealed with the promised spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance. If we all, church, if we all have the Holy Spirit of God indwelling us, then I'd say we have a bit in common. 
In 2.18, we all have access in one spirit to the Father. And as we saw last week, we're all being strengthened in power through his spirit. One hope. Paul prays that we would know the hope to which he has called you. 2.12, we were previously without hope, but now we share in the hope of the gospel. One Lord. Throughout Ephesians, Paul uses the title Lord to speak about Jesus. 1-7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Chapter 1 and 2 both, because the Father has raised and seated Jesus at his right hand, we too by our union with him are raised and seated with him. That's our one Lord, and we've all been united by the blood of Jesus. Going on, one faith. We've all placed our faith in the same gospel. We see that back in verse 13. To eight, all have been saved through faith and have access with confidence through our faith in Christ and are growing as he resides in us more and more. The only one of these unity statements that we don't see already in the book of Ephesians is one baptism. It's, not the, it's the only one not explicitly mentioned already, but if we take baptism as shorthand for conversion and being received into his body, then obviously we've seen a great deal of that already in Ephesians 1 through 3. And then the one that gets the most emphasis here for Paul's purpose, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Back in chapter one, we've been, all been adopted by the Father as full heirs and we await the full inheritance that we now only have a down payment of. Chapter two, because of our adoption, we're all members together of his family, members of the household of God. In chapter 3, he's the father from whom the whole family is named. Okay, so, so get this. Christ's church isn't united around life stage or any other kind of affinity. We're united around the gospel. And when we fight to maintain our unity, when we fight to maintain our unity around that, we show off how important that is. When, the, when we start being united among any kind of other thing, the world understands that. They're united around other things. But when we fight to make sure that it's the gospel that we're uniting around, then we're lifting up the gospel. And where we fail to preserve our unity, we separate what Christ has brought together by his blood. Again, go back and read to 11 through 22. So that's the basis of our unity. Those are the weighty things that we all hold in common that ought to pull us together with the force of a rare earth magnet. But Paul has likewise already given us the kind of character that should mark us as a people that will help us to maintain unity in the body. So if you go back to verse 2, you can see with me 
This is the kind of Christ-like character every part of the body must have in order for us to be united, to be the united body that works properly and builds itself up. Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. If we're going to be a united body that builds itself up, we must be a people marked by Christ-like humility. Said negatively, self-seeking, pride, arrogance will rend the body into pieces, undermining the inherent unity that he's already given us. If we're going to be a people going on in chapter 4 that can minister, that can speak the truth in love to one another, we have to do that from a posture of Christ-like humility. For one, if your focus is only you, then you leave out of here on Sunday morning or you leave out of base group on Sunday night and you won't even think, you won't even give a thought to anybody else in the body until the next week comes around. And for two, when you do undertake to care for others in the body, then Christ-like care must be undertaken in Christ-like character. As Philippians 2 tells us, we must all look again and again to Christ's example in the incarnation and the cross, and therefore in humility count others more significant than ourselves looking not only to our own interests, but also to the interest of others. Second character of unity, we see gentleness or meekness. If we're going to do the kind of bodybuilding work that builds up the body, we must be humble, we must be gentle. And gentleness doesn't mean weakness. Rather, it speaks to an others-oriented concern Gentleness is, of course, one of the fruits of the Spirit, one of the evidences of Christian character that the Holy Spirit should be producing more and more in you if you're a Christian. Uh, Paul says about, Genesis, or about gentleness in Thessalonians, uh, he, he gives us a word picture when he says, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. That's the picture of gentleness. But it's not weakness or lack of conviction. Rather, it's delivering, gentleness is delivering that strong conviction with loving skill that gives the other person the best opportunity to respond well. One of the things we see repeatedly in the New Testament is that the Bible couples giving a hard word of conviction with a call to, to do it with gentleness. So Galatians 6, 1, if someone's caught in sin, they should be restored, but it should be done in a spirit of gentleness. That's a work that takes strong conviction when you're dealing with someone caught in sin, but it needs to be done with gentleness. 2 Timothy 2, talking to, about the pastor, he says, the Lord's servant is to correct his opponents, the, those teaching unhealthily, but, uh, so that's going to require sharp words sometimes to correct an opponent, but it's to be done with gentleness. First Peter 3, all of us are called to be 
prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in us, but we're all called to deliver it with gentleness and respect. So gentleness is not shying away from the hard word. It's delivering it in a way that uh, is, shows the gentleness of Christ. And if we're going to realize this kind of care, this kind of building up that the text calls us to, then that kind of care and building up must be a gentle care. Third, we see the third character trait of our unity, we see with patience, bearing with one another in love. This is a fruit of the Spirit. We must all be a Christ-like people, not set on edge too quickly. Okay, that's patience. If we're going to live in community in the church, we can't be easily set on edge by our brothers and sisters. If the church is going to function like the family of God that the Bible calls us to, sometimes we're just going to get on each other's nerves. Amen? Yeah. Hang around any of us for very long and annoying quirks will come out. And more than that, like the vestiges of our sinful flesh, that's going to come out. And in those moments, are we going to be a community of grace marked by patiently bearing with one another in those times? Or will we lash out and nitpick? Or... Will we just retreat from the relationship and just kind of short-circuit God's means of iron sharpening iron? We need to be patient, bearing with one another in love. And lastly, note this, in love. If we have love for each other, we can bear with them. Love is mentioned here in verse 2. It's mentioned again in verse 15, speaking the truth in love. And in verse 16, the body builds itself up in love. If we're going to be the kind of church that builds itself up continuously over and over again, it has to be bathed with love for one another. Love is how we maintain unity and how we build one another up. The love will express itself in the way that we just overlook some things, right? Like we just bear with and we just overlook and say, yeah, we're not, we're not going to talk about that. It'll express itself in how we have a burden for one another that causes us to move toward one another and speak the truth to one another. It'll express itself in how we seek to build up one another. If you lack bearing with, if you lack speaking the truth, if you lack this, this activity of building up one another in the body of Christ, listen, it's because you lack love for your brothers and sisters. You need to grow in the covenantal commitment to one another that's the root posture that then expresses itself in fruit action. So as one body united around the gospel, growing in these Christ-like virtues, we must strive to maintain unity in the body of Christ. Second call of our text today is the call to be equipped. A united body should then be an equipped body, and that equipped body will be a body that builds itself up more and more. In 
two through six, Paul focuses on the unity of the body, but then he begins a turn in verse seven. He says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So we saw uh, unity, and then with the word but, we start to see a contrast that he's showing us. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, we can go on in 8 through 10. Paul supports his argument of verse 7, that grace is given to each of us, with a quotation from Psalm 68. And let me just say, we're only going to scratch the surface of what all Paul is saying here. I think that this would be fascinating, that you'd find it fascinating study to go away and look at how Paul uses uh, Psalm 68 here, how he allude, how he quotes just a little bit of it, but it really alludes to the entirety of the context. But for our purposes today, we're just going to leave a little bit of that meat on the bone for you so that you can go chew on it in your own study. Verse 8 in Ephesians is a depiction of military victory and then a sharing of the spoils of that victory. Verse 9 and 10 say that God who descended in Jesus in his incarnation has now ascended in victory far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. In summary, here's what we need to see this morning from this text. Jesus is the triumphant king who having triumphed shares the spoils of victory with the church and he gives Gifts to each of us out of that. That's what 4-7 is telling us. 4-8. So I think then that verse 8 does hint at uh, a, a diversity of gifts inside the body, just like we would see in 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, 1 Peter 4, where we see these kind of gift li lists. I think verse 8, when he says he gave gifts to men, does hint at that. For now, we can say this, in the one united body of Christ, Christ has given us all different gifts for the building up of his body. Look to verse 11, and let's see what one of those gifts that he's given to the body. It says, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. One of the gifts, church, one of the gifts that God has given you is leaders and teachers to equip you to do the work of ministry. He gave. That's what he gave to you. This is a gift from the risen, triumphant Christ to his church. And when Jesus gives the church, a gift, we should relish that, right? Like, I think we've all been around a child, maybe, open up a gift on Christmas or uh, on a birthday or something like that, and they're like, what is this? I don't want this, you know, just have that totally ungrateful kind of attitude towards a, towards a gift. Uh, we don't want to be like that with gifts from the risen Christ to the church, we want to receive 
gifts that he gives us in gratitude. And that means the gifts that each one of us have been given by the Spirit, and it also means the gift of leaders in the church that, that teach well. Um, it's a little awkward for me to be up here as a teacher and be like, you should appreciate the teaching, whatever. That's a little awkward. Let's just name that. So um, what is it that he gave? He gave specifically gifted leaders to the Ephesian church. Let me say here, uh, apostles, he gave apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers, I would see, based on chapter 2 and based on chapter 3, I would see the apostles and the prophets, the way that the phrase apostles and prophets is used in chapter 2 and then in chapter 3, and now here repeated together in chapter 4, I would see the apostles and the prophets given for the foundation of the Ephesian church. Um, and then I would say that we don't have the same kind of apostles and prophets that uh, he's talking about today. Others would differ on that. They would, this is where some would see a five-fold ministry in the church. You have apostles, you have prophets, you have evangelists, you have shepherds, and you have teachers. But if you go back and look at how it's used in chapter 2 and then how it's used in chapter 3, I do think that the apostles and the prophets provide the foundation of teaching for the church and then we no longer have those today. The Ephesian church then was taught by the apostles and prophets. And then there's evangelists who herald the gospel, thereby bringing uh, new converts into the church. And then after that, there's shepherds and teachers. So I think what we're supposed to see in apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers is a forward flow of the gospel, that they're established by apostles and prophets. Then the evangelists herald the gospel and bring people into the church. And then shepherds and teachers uh, equip, equip the church uh, once, it's, once it's gathered. I think there's a forward flow of the gospel there. Uh, and last, there's some discussion here about whether shepherds and teachers are one thing or they're two things. If you want to force me uh, to, to put my cards down, I'm going to say that it's probably one thing, that shepherds and teachers refers to one uh, different, one, one kind of office because of the way that uh, the articles are listed in the Greek. It says, and the apostles, and the prophets, and the shepherds, or and the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers all together. So uh, I'm not sure that changes a ton, but I do think that pastor-teacher is the, the one thing there. So the risen, triumphant Christ has given a gift to the church, pastor-teachers, and for the purpose of what? What does it say? He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints. We can think around, this might sound a little bit pedantic, but think about the way that we view church today in our culture. The pastors and the teachers, they're not given to entertain the saints. Let's try not to be boring. I'm probably failing at that this morning, but let's try not to be boring. But we're not given to entertain the saints. We're not even given to inspire the saints. I hope you're spurred on from hearing God's word preached here, but that's not fundamentally why we teach. 
The fundamental vision for the New Testament church is that pastors and teachers equip the church to, to, with solid teaching, and then an equipped church goes about the work of ministry, which is building up the body of Christ. Way back when I started student ministry uh, over at, at New Branch, our student ministry staff, uh, four or five of us, we always used to say the same thing over and over. We used to say, we're here to equip, not entertain. We're trying to build an army, not an audience. And that's the idea, that we come together. You don't sit under preaching, sit under Wednesday night discipleship just to like receive, receive, receive. Though again, I hope you're blessed. Rather, the church comes together under teachers in order to be better equipped and then go minister to one another and thereby do the work of building up the body. So that means, church family, that we have a responsibility to get equipped. Every member here has a responsibility to make sure that we're growing in our own personal knowledge so that we have something to build up the body of Christ with. Let me ask you, what would it look like for you to better pursue being trained, being equipped, so that you might then be able to better build up the body? Remember, church, we want you to be able to handle the word of God in such a way that when your brother or sister needs a word of encouragement, you have one to give. When they need a word of warning delivered in gentleness, we need you to have one to give. When they need some help thinking biblically about some kind of issue, we need you to be able to help them with that. The elders are always going to be here to help, to serve, to shepherd, to teach. But when you are yourself equipped, when you're yourself equipped and you serve as a fellow minister in the body, we exponentially multiply the amount of ministry and discipleship that goes on in our church family. Because then we don't just have four guys running around. We don't have five, seven, or whatever. We don't have two or three discipleship venues and contexts. Rather, we have 65, and about to add another, ministers building up the body by giving gospel encouragement gospel exhortation, and practical love. I think this goes on already. Let me not, don't hear me, miss, don't mishear me on that. I think this goes on, but I do think it's something that we need to embrace more and more. And for you to do that work well, uh, you need to be equipped. Point three, build up the body. Uh, Verse, chapter 4, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. I've um, already really kind of alluded and said much on this topic, and we also return next week to, in chapter 4, 12 through 16, to cover this more in depth. But, in, in depth. but let me say this this morning. This is what we need to see. Teachers equip saints 
Saints do ministry to one another, and when that happens, the whole body builds itself up. When that happens, again, it's not just leaders doing the work of building up, but it's all of us. Uh, I close with this. It's helpful to think of the church as both an organization and organism. And we want to see the Thessalonian like more and more. We want to see that in both as an organization and as organism. As an organization, the church has elders and it has staff and it has ministry leaders. It has structures that plan ministry for the church family. We plan Sundays, we plan discipleship classes, men's studies, women's studies, we plan for kids' ministry, we plan to launch a student ministry. All of this kind of church-as-organization stuff is the kind of thing that you'll see in the bulletin when it goes out tomorrow. And we're going to keep pursuing more and more and better and better in all of that. So, sure, give us your feedback. Tell us how we can better equip you. Tell us the kind of classes that you'd like to see us put on the calendar. Tell us times that might work better for you. Um, we're not even three months old, so we can't do everything, but we're going to constantly evaluate the what's best next as we seek to make disciples and provide ways that you can grow deep roots in the gospel. Okay, so church is organization. We're going to continue to try and grow more and more. But church as organism is where the greater amount of untapped potential lies in discipleship. As an organism, the body itself is free to do all kinds of ministry to one another. And no one's, no one's going to stop you from that. Okay, so please, let's do that more and more. We see a need. We meet a need. You have an idea. Go for it. You want to study something. Get a couple brothers or sisters and gather around and just do it. Church, if we're going to be all that Christ calls us to be as a church, we have to grow in our understanding that the church is an organization, but it's also an organism that is made up of every single one of us. We most naturally, okay, we most naturally think, when we think about church, we think of it as an organization. And so we come up with a to-do list for like leaders and staff, but we need to remember, we need to grow in remembering that the church is also an organism. It's a body. And we need to then think through a to-do list for ourselves and find ways that we can individually, as a family, as a base group, walk out in all kinds of good bodybuilding activity that you don't need our kind of permission to, to get after. We're already authorized to do that kind of work in chapter 4, 12 through 16. So let's do that work more and more. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I pray that you would use your word, stir in us a desire to build one another up more and more. Lord, help us to be encouraged that every single one of us here can do this work, Lord. So encourage everyone here. Uh, Father, I do...
pray that you would create in us a culture of going to one another and a culture of uh, constantly building one another up. Lord, do that work in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.